So, Father God, as we look at the testimony of history that we find in your word, and God, as we look at the truth that is there that you've left there for us to discover, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would quicken each of our hearts here and our minds that we would hear from you and you alone that which you would have us see. In the name of Jesus, I command any dark spirit, anything that would be marauding, anything that would twist, that would be gone and silenced, that what we would hear is the spirit of truth and that alone. God, I thank you for your grace, Lord, and I ask that you would speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, First uh, Samuel chapter 10, it's the beginning of a story of a famous, famous man. Which man? Saul. This is a story of, of King Saul. And, uh, and I, I, there's a, a little bit that starts up to this. I'm going to dive in and just read a, a, ch- a chunk of 1 Samuel 10 just to try to set the stage. And so this is where he ends up. Um, he's going out chasing some missing donkeys. He ends up running into uh, uh, the prophet Samuel. It says, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor and there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man." It shall be that when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And he goes on, and it says, yes, and then you shall go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart and all those things came about on that day. And then it goes through and it describes those things that, that happened. And so this is, that's, the, that's kind of this, the, the anointing of, of Saul. What a weird day, right? You go up, a guy pours a big, huge jug of oil on your head. Now you're all sticky and oily, right? And oil was probably uh, was way more expensive then than it was now. And so he's all sticky and oily. And then he gets kissed by this prophet and then, uh, and then he goes through, and then the prophet says, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. They're all kind of weird things. And then he goes out, and it happens. Anybody have that happen, like last Monday? You're like in the grocery store, and a guy grabs you and says, and it's like, didn't happen to me either. So that is kind of a, a weird day. But it's interesting to me, it says, and it all starts, and it says, and Saul gets a new heart. 
And so then after that, um, there's kind of a process of Saul coming into the position of being king. He doesn't immediately, like the next day, become king. Does anybody remember this, the, the whole thing about later, Samuel calls uh, the whole nation together and they're going to choose a king. He's already anointed Saul king, and he comes up and, then they, and they're like um, casting lots. They're basically rolling dice, and then to go through and to select families, and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until random, but Samuel understands this is God choosing, it chooses Saul. And so there's a whole nation there. They know that God is giving them a king because they've requested it. And all along, I'll also remind you that Samuel the prophet says, you guys don't need a king. You shouldn't be asking for a king. But God is going to acquiesce. He'll give you a king anyway. And so, uh, so there's this kind of this tension in that whole story. And then all the people are there and they come down and they choose that, that they roll the dice and the dice lands on Saul. Where is Saul? Anybody remember? He's in the luggage. He's literally says hiding with the luggage. I love that. I think I'm not sure if there's any other place in the Bible that I know of where the word luggage appears. And uh, and it says literally he's over there. He's hiding with the luggage. And then um, and so and what's what are the physical qualities of Saul that you remember? What's he like? He's good looking and he's tall, right? Man, I wish I was good looking and tall. That would be nice. But right, so he says he's like head and shoulders over everybody else. Well, that's convenient, right? That, wow, that's, that's good. And then, and, and good looking too. And so he has the sort of things that someone would be looking for in a king, right? But Saul doesn't have to fake it. He's real. He really is good looking. He really is tall he really is strong he's got it but his heart right he was hiding in the luggage he knew what was coming and he's like i can't do this in spite of the fact that he'd had an encounter with god already okay so then but then um in this we also go further and and saul actually ends up leading them to victory there's some some bad guys come. I'm going to just kind of gloss over pretty quick. Some, some bad guys come and they're threatening them. And then and Saul hears about it. And he hasn't, been, he hasn't taken his position of king yet. He's out there um, working, working the soil. And then he cuts up the, the plow and he cuts up the oxen. He sends it out and he says, this is going to be anybody who doesn't come right now and fight this battle. And instead of being just terrified, even though there might have been a little bit of that, everybody's like, we've got a leader. And God starts to bring victory. In 1 Samuel um, chapter 11, but certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. That is, is that's the Saul that is there. And then later on, after, after they have this victory, at the end, later on in this chapter, all of the people remembered, oh yeah, those guys, they're like, we're gonna, that we're making fun of Saul. Later on, they come back after this next victory. I'm going to read it in verse 11, verses 12 through 13 and 14. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, this is after the victory, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation 
in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there remove the kingdom or renew the kingdom. So at this point, something good is really happening. You have a guy who had a chance to have vengeance. He had the support of the people for vengeance and he could have sealed politically his position as king and yet he chose not to. He said the victory came from God. There's been enough killing today. We're not doing that. God will get the glory. We're choosing peace today. But here's some of the things that shifted over time and where we're going is Saul didn't remain in that place, right? Later on, he, he made some different choices. Over the next couple of chapters, Saul demonstrate, demonstrates that he doesn't truly trust in God. When Samuel the prophet doesn't arrive later on, when expected, he makes a sacrifice and an appeal to God on his own because he didn't trust Samuel didn't show up on time. I've got these guys coming. We're going to go into battle. If I don't hear from God, if I don't make God happy, if I don't do this whole sacrifice thing, we're all going down. And the prophet didn't come, so I have to do it myself. So he did. Later on, and also in there, he has a victory where the the, the word of the Lord was, don't let anything survive. We can have that discussion on a a different Sunday. But he was told, don't let anything, anything survive. Nothing. Don't bring back. And then he comes back and uh, he let the king survive of the enemy, brought him back. And then he let all of the good sheep, all of the good animals, anything that was really, truly valuable, he brought it back. And he shows up to Samuel, meets Samuel the prophet, and he says, hey, I've done exactly what you told me that God told me to do. And Samuel says, like, why then am I hearing the bleeding of goats and sheep? And he says, oh, well, you know what? I brought back, I brought back the very best for your God, to sacrifice to your God. Samuel pushes back and says, "Um, I thought uh, God values obedience more than sacrifice. And so that kind of sets up a pattern in Saul's life where where he's, he's trying to get things right ish and the evidence in his life is that he fears people more than he fears god i'm going to skip ahead and i'm going to land on a particular verse and it's chapter 15 and uh in chapter 15 we start to get a clue it's verse 17 this is again where He's fighting, he's getting in trouble, he's not necessarily obeying the way he's supposed to. And Samuel is continuing to challenge Saul with the word of God. And and here it says, Samuel says to Saul, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Let me read that again, and I want you to hear the contrast. Samuel saying to Saul, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. So here you have the guy that's really tall, really good looking, really strong. He's got it all, the natural. He's got it all. But we see evidence when he went and he hides in the luggage. 
that he doesn't see himself as that. He sees himself as small. He sees himself as insignificant. It appears that he sees himself as incapable. And he also turns around and he begins to project that on others. That's why he didn't wait for Samuel. That's why he didn't obey. He starts to fear the people and make decisions based on the people instead of on the direction of God. And the reason why is because Samuel, Saul is seeing himself as something other than what God created him to be. And here's the contrast. Though you are little in your own eyes. And the contrast is that he had been anointed, empowered, enabled, called, and positioned to function as a king. He did not have to fail. He did not have to compromise. He did not have to fall apart. He did not have to get all twisted and strange. He didn't have to. He ended up there because he was believing things that weren't true. So, when God anointed Saul to be in his position, didn't God give him everything he needed to do what God asked him to do? Yes. Absolutely. And yet, Saul didn't succeed. Why not? What broke in this story? What broke for Saul? What was it? Saul believed that he is something other than what God made him to be. Saul does not see himself as God made him to be. Instead, he sees himself as the little guy, the guy that's unworthy and the guy that's not good enough, the guy that's always scrapping to try and hold himself together, the guy that's trying to pull himself up by the bootstraps, the guy who's trying to prove again and again and again, not just to the world, but to himself that he matters because there's voices in his head telling him otherwise. Here's where this gets harsh. There was a lie from the devil But because Saul believed the lie, Saul began to live as if that lie was true, and then he began to look like the lie that the devil was telling him, because he began to act out as if it was true, that he was not what God had actually made him to be. Saul lives his life in a constant battle with with the lie running through his head, you're not good enough. You don't deserve to be here. Nobody likes you anyway. You're a fake king. God planned for you to fail. Now, I'm speculating on that one. But has anybody ever been in that position where you're doing your best to serve God and then something comes up and you're like, there's something in in your spirit that says, God set this up. So that's a that's a normal thing that the devil will do. The devil will do something and then say, oh, it's God's fault. God did it. As the story, um, Saul completely loses focus on God, though he did have his focus on God at the beginning and there was great success for him, but he lost it a pretty short time after he started his reign as king. So as the story unfolds, Saul begins to, he loves a very, very impressive young man named David. And he comes to love David because of what David can do for him. There's two things that come up 
in my mind that David did for Saul. There's lots of things, but the two things, there's two big ones. What's a, what's a really big thing that David did for Saul? He killed the big guy. He killed Goliath, right? Took him out. That was a big, big deal. But then the other thing, you guys remember that David was a musician. And how did he serve Saul as a musician? Yeah, he'd play music that was soothing. And now, I don't know that it's explicitly clear, but if I look at all in Psalms, the sort of songs that, that David sings, they're worship songs. And I don't know for sure, but I would speculate that David was worshiping God. Right? And as David would worship God, the evil spirit that was harassing Saul had to be silenced. It could not continue. But then later on, so, so Saul began to love David because he was no longer focused on God. He was focused on people. He's focused on himself. He's focused on fighting off the lies about how small and insignificant he was. And so he loved David for what David could do for him. And then later on, he heard some ladies singing as David had gone out and was having these massive victories on Saul's behalf. And they came back and, and Saul heard them singing, La, 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 la. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. You have an insecure king who's struggling for an identity, and suddenly his cool guy is getting sung about ten thousands. Right? That might not land very well, right? Can you see how that could go a little sideways in the heart of this king? It did. And so then Saul began to hate David because of what he thought David could do to him. He loved him for what David could do for him, and then later he began to fear him and hate him because of what David could do to him. Now, David's music and worship of God could silence the evil spirits. David's courage and skill would defeat a giant and bring victory. David was even a faithful friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. And then the song came from the women. And he stops loving David for what David can do. For him, and Saul begins to hate David for what David could do to him. Saul believes the devil's lie about himself, and then he begins to believe the devil's lie about David. Here's part of the story I'm going to be reading in 1 Samuel 18. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out in all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs and joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they were celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed merely thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Verse 10. The next day, the next day, a harmful spirit, it says from God, we're going to talk about that, rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice, and then the same, a similar story repeats in the next chapter. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, and, uh, and but had departed from Saul. Ouch. 
Okay, so one thing where I won't dive into this really, really deep. It says the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Right? I struggle with that stuff. But if you look at the original language, as I understand, it says from God. The word translated as God is the word Elohim. And so Elohim, from what I see in Scripture, there's different Elohims. There is one God of the Bible who is typically identified as Yahweh Elohim. And sometimes, um, sometimes it just talks about the God of the Bible as Elohim. It's short. But there, um, but there are indications that Elohim is also plural. And so it could be, it could be that this is just saying that it was spirit from the gods, lowercase g, not capital G. And it's a, and it's a subjective way of how it was translated. And so uh, I'm not a linguistic expert, but, um, but I think that would be an appropriate translation. And so if you struggle with those things, like God sending an evil spirit on King Saul, if you go to the original language, you can, I think you can read it at face value, and it doesn't say that necessarily that the God, our God, sent an evil spirit to Saul. But it does say um, Elohim, lowercase g, gods sent a spirit or it came from them. But notice that when Saul began to hurl a spear at David to kill him, it was literally the next day after that offense rose up, over 10,000 and 1,000, and then that became an open door for this harmful spirit to come upon Saul. And then the next thing is, is Saul tries to kill David with a spear. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. He didn't want to look at him anymore, but he still wanted to have the good things that David did. And he went out, David went out, and he came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And so Saul came to fear David instead of fearing God. Because Saul believed the lies of the enemy about himself, he shifted his gaze from God and he began to fear man. In this instance, who won? In the broadest sense, who won in this situation? I'm going to give you this one. Number one, ultimately, God still won. God's word was still fulfilled. But in the, in the shorter sense, um, the lies didn't bring victory to Saul. It caused harm to David. Ultimately, God used these things to, to bring David into the place where God intended David to be. But there was just yuckiness around all of that where these lies were being believed and spoken right and lived out ultimately god still won however when saul won or lost he would always end up losing when he built his life on a lie about the one about who he himself actually was david though flawed did not fall for the same lies David remembered, so there's two things. First, David remembered that he was anointed by God and his victory came from God. There was a point when Saul remembered that too. David remembered his authority came from God and David remembered that his very identity came from God. And just like Saul, David was made king by God, not men. However, David remembered and so David left his kingship and his success in God's hands. Secondly, David remembered that Saul was anointed by God. David didn't just remember his own identity came from God. He also remembered that Saul's identity came from God, even though Saul wasn't living it out. Even when Saul did not remember his own identity, David remembered it. 
And for this reason, David refused to harm Saul even when he had every earthly reason. This meant that Saul did not die on on those days and David was not guilty of King Saul's blood. Third, it's noteworthy that David did not appear to harbor ongoing bitterness towards Saul. When Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, you might remember that David actually grieved for them. So here's the biggest take-home. And this is one of those things that um, that is familiar. It's really simple. It's from Ephesians. The battle's not against flesh and blood, no matter how fleshy and no matter how bloody it appears. You say that with me? The battle is not against flesh and blood, no matter how fleshy and how bloody it appears. There are consequences that are flesh and blood consequences. But that's not where the battle is. At some point, as I've been diving in, that comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's a beautiful chapter. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. At some point, I'm going to tear that apart. It's, there's so much packed in that one verse. David was never Saul's enemy because David lived from God's identity for himself and God's identity for Saul. Saul lived as David's enemy because he did not see himself as God saw him and therefore could not see anyone else as God saw them. So consider this. Probably all of us have stood in Saul's shoes. And all of us have stood in David's shoes. And so if you recall, Saul really got some stuff right. And David got some stuff wrong. And so this isn't a message where we all get to be, I'm Saul or I'm David. I'm looking at principles here. Instead, it was a battle for um, Saul's mind and heart and a battle for David's mind and heart. And it was a battle for truth and identity. So here's my question. Are you living from the position of being a child of God who has life and purpose and hope Or are you living as an orphan just trying to fend for yourself and survive at every level? Are you living from the position of being a child of God who has life and purpose and hope or are you living as an orphan trying to fend for yourself at every level? Who is it that tells you who you are? Your creator. He has the authority to tell you who you are. Is the devil going to say anything nice to you? No, unless he's trying to lure you into something and hurt you, right? He'll say nice things on those days, but it's always temporary. Our identity comes as a child of God. That's where it comes. That's where hope is. That's where our future is. That's where our life is. That's where it is. And yet, I don't know about you all, but when the devil comes and starts to tell me, something else other than who God tells me who I am, it is really hard to ignore it. Any honest people in the room? I know this. And I know if it's true for me, it's not just true for me because I'm not that special. I'm going to read a couple passages. We'll close. And I just picked just a couple of verses that talk a little bit about who we are as we who belong to God. Right? Because... Because we have to belong. Our life comes in Jesus. 
1 John 3.1, we've sung this one recently. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we would be called the children of God, and so we are. And he's speaking to believers here. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. There will be contrast between the world and those who belong to Jesus. Expect it. But our identity and love comes from the Father. John chapter 1, verse 12 but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is not just an intellectual thing. He actually changes us. And as we learn to live in the identity he gives us, us you can have freedom. Right? This isn't just feel good. This is a shift in identity. And there's feeling consequences of the shift of identity, but it's not about feeling good. It's about being different because of an encounter with the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.18 And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In Galatians 3.26 For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Has anybody ever struggled with that? This whole idea of being told that you're something? There are voices telling you that you're something other than and less than what God's made you to be. This is one of the things. Like, this is like an honesty thing, right? Because then I don't know about you all, but I would be very surprised if there was a single person who hasn't experienced that. And it can be very, very difficult. And I don't know about you all, but I find that even, even after gaining a significant uh, more freedom than I've had, I remember for years and years and years, it just crushed by these voices in my mind. It wasn't the voice of the Lord. So, is there anybody who says you'd like to have those voices gone? I'm going to walk in freedom. So let's pray, because God is our, our Savior. Um, let me pray, Richard, and then we'll do that. So Lord Jesus, I thank You that You have bought our freedom Jesus, I thank you that in you we have an identity that is pure and holy and strong and righteous. And as we humble ourselves before you, you are transforming us from the level of glory that you've given us to another level of glory that is greater. And it comes from surrender. And it comes from your goodness and your work in our life. Holy Spirit, I ask you to help us have the courage and the freedom to lay ourselves down before you and give you permission to shift us and to change us and to take that away from us that we don't need and is not holy and to install within us that which is righteous and to replace within us the identity that you intend for each person here that we would from this day forward go from stride, stride, stride and we would step into greater identity that comes from you and every other thing would be silenced and fall apart it would be gone father i thank you that you are raising up a righteous people who are secure in their knowledge of themselves as you as king and father and us as your children that are safe and loved God, I ask that you, at your command, at the command and the will of Jesus Christ, that every lying voice would be silenced and removed. That perhaps for the first time in years, that my friends and myself 
and we would have complete quiet in our mind except for you, God, speaking to us and us speaking back to you. God, I thank you for the freedom that you've bought for us is available. Bring freedom in Jesus' name. Amen.